Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you may have guessed from my prayer, I have one or two particular aims this morning. And uh, as we saw in the prior psalm last week, there was an interplay between the group and the individual and Psalm 23, as it's beloved in our country, uh, is, is a demonstration of supreme individual confidence in the deliverance and power of God to protect the individual. And today again, we hear the psalmist pray a prayer of individual despair that then becomes provision for the many. So there's two ideas that I want to explore throughout this passage. One is that in American culture, we have highlighted the individual. And one of the ways that you might remember this is whenever you tack an ism onto a noun. So the individual is created by God, and the individual has dignity and purpose before God. But individualism is an ideology or a, or a set of thoughts and way that become a way of thinking and therefore a way of life that we elevate the individual to have primacy in life. Now, the danger with that is, of course, that we're made as creatures in community. None of us live for ourselves. None of us die to ourselves. We were born in a community. We were conceived in relationship to our mothers individually. And in that harmony of the family, we are brought forth. And yet as Christians, we must repent individually, and we must confess our sins individually. And yet we become united to a group at the same time, that by faith in Jesus Christ, we being united to him are made a part of his people. And so for Christians in America, it is often a very serious danger to respond to the excesses of American individualism and fall into the other side of the ditch, which is collectivism. That is to say, I am a part of this group, and therefore I, I, by nature of just being a part of that group, get all the benefits or privileges of that group's uh, existence. And the problem is that God requires us individually to come to him and individually to walk out our sanctification. The danger of collectivism is not just in the larger culture of critical race theory or 
uh, us versus them, what's so, what's so often called identity politics, that is a very real danger. But a corollary very real danger is that we think because we go to a good church or we think that because we vote according to a particular pattern or that we are in some economic strata or we are members of a career or a culture that we therefore have a reality with God. Keith Green, a wonderful worship leader from the 70s who passed away in a tragic accident, he, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? Attendance or mere peripheral association with a group, just being acquainted with the things of God does not mean that we have a reality with God. And so as we think about these things in the scriptures, we tend to let the pendulum swing too far unless we're grounded in the scriptures. And being grounded in the scriptures, I think that this psalm, as we'll see both in the introduction and at the end, demonstrates the sort of relationship of health between the one and the many, between the individual and the group. And... Uh, I, I believe that's important because if we are always just transferring our health to being a responsibility of our church or a responsibility of our company or a responsibility that the government has to provide for its citizens, if we buy into these ideas, we actually make ourselves very deficient, not only in the moments of crisis, but also the moments every day of taking up our responsibilities for ourselves, that after we're remade in Christ, how do we understand how we ourselves as mature Christian men and women are to struggle and fight the fight of faith? Yes, we have to bear one another's burdens. And we don't only look out for the interest of ourselves, but we look out for the interest of others. However, each one must bear his own load. If we were here during the time of Galatians, we looked at how that is the only proper healthy structure for a church. Each one is trying to hold his shield. And if his shield is big enough or he has the ability, occasionally he puts it over someone else or a many someone else's. The idea is that we as individual believers, after we are remade in Christ, that we pursue maturity and we learn how to bring God into everyday moments. And the reason why I brought all of this up is because not only the structure of this psalm, being an individual song of lament, but also the end of the psalm, we see an arc from the individual to becoming gospel speech for the collective or for the group. So that's my theme and my aim, is that we would be able to examine this example of this psalmist's trust in God's ability to redeem, and that from that example, we would imitate him, not just in how we express our needs to God, but also in how we relate to our neighbors and fellow Christians. So with that in mind, I want to look at five ideas. We're going to examine this psalm verse by verse in couplets. So we're going to look first at the calling from the depths for mercy. This psalmist is calling out to God, and this cry that he is unleashing is not a momentary concern. It is a deep, long, persisting concern. 
Then we're going to look at how that turns from a cry for mercy to remembering the necessity of God's forgiveness and the possibility of God's forgiveness. This psalmist brings to mind God's revelation of himself to Moses that there is forgiveness with God. Then a commending or a, or a promotion or a retelling, a reassertion of his, of his faith in the God who will show up. And then finally, we're going to look at how he speaks to Israel and commends to them the God who redeems the people. And then finally, after all that's said and done, we're going to see how did this redemption, which the psalmist only speaks of in kernel, or in seed, how does it come to fruition? How, does it, how is it manifested by God? So, this psalm begins as a song of lament. As we said, there's an arc, there's a journey in this psalm. And it begins as a song of lament for the specific reason that this psalmist is lying under the weight of his sins. He explodes into a cry, of God, uh, a cry to God, and it moves from a place of bitterness, out of the depths I cry to you. While this is a very brief statement, the psalmist's words indicate a very profound or fundamental cry. In fact, if you read this psalm in the Latin, the first words of it are profundus. That is to say, Things which we consider to be profound are fundamental or they're deep. That's a, a very important word. Uh, if any of you have acquaintance with the 80s and 90s culture, that's deep, man. Was, was, that was the parlance because it's, it's expressing a reality which has weight, which has a foundation. And so this person, this psalmist is saying, I'm crying from the deepest place in me. At the bottom of all I am as a person, I'm unleashing a cry to God. Why? Because of the great weight of iniquity. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This psalmist is not praying about things that are primarily inflicted upon him, but are actually committed by him. Startled we may be to hear these as words of scripture. In this verse, in verse 2, he says, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive. And when we hear that, we have to say, why is he asking God to be attentive? Because he's prayed before, and he feels like God's not being attentive, that God isn't listening. We have to ask, how can the psalmist imply that God is not attentive or is reluctant to be merciful? Remember, he is the God who abounds in loving kindness, and his mercy extends to thousands of generations. And yet this psalmist brings a charge, in a sense, in his cry. From this raw place of foundational human emotion, human reality, human suffering in the light of his own sin, he asks God, for mercy, and he asks the Lord, who is always able to hear, to hear. And so we might hear this and say, hmm, this is, this is strange that this is even scriptural. Uh, it's strange that this psalmist is in a place where he's implying that God hasn't yet heard him. Even more startling are these words as rugged individualists. It seems if we were to evaluate or psychoanalyze this psalmist as 
thoroughly individualistic Christians, we might accuse him of being weak. In our culture, there is a sort of rugged individualism, which is an unwritten doctrine of the American way, and it's thoroughly infected the church. This psalmist, if we were to evaluate him on a surface level, would seem to us as emotionally weak and unstable and wavering in his faith. He is ignorant because he's saying, God, hear my cry. And yet we know, we rugged theologians, we know that God hears all and God sees all. His eyes are in every place. Everything before him is uncovered. How can this psalmist imply that God is not hearing him? How can this psalmist ask for mercy that this God would not give to him? We might be tempted to dismiss the reality of what this psalmist is going through, and we would accuse him of being weak in faith, wouldn't we? But on the contrary, this psalmist actually exemplifies deep faith. I was reminded when I was reading through this psalm a few weeks ago of a person who was describing the sort of faith that Mother Teresa had as she was operating in the orphanage in Calcutta, India. Now, there are many different compelling, uh, compelling and less compelling stories about Mother Teresa's experience. However, when she was communicating with one of the sisters in her, in her group, uh, she basically said, sister or mother, whatever they called her, I have not felt God's presence for years. Why is it that my faith is so weak? And the, the, her spiritual caretaker actually turned it around and said, the very fact that you're still here means you have great faith. Many of us, we love the presence of God. We love when God speaks to us from his word. And we often mistake what faith is. Yes, faith apprehends. Faith takes hold of the truth of God's word. But to measure our experience in the light of what we feel or what we think or what we feel God thinks about us rather than the objective faith of who he is in his nature, that right there is a, is a great, there's a great chasm between those two ways of life. For many of us, we trust in our experience. We trust in what we perceive to be the reality of our faith. And yet, God wants to bring us to a place where we do not trust in how we performed that week. And yet, we trust in the objective fact of Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. That really is what I think this psalmist is doing. That in the place of extreme despair, he still calls to God. Many of us, we call out to God, we pray, we worship when things are going well, and we shy away from him when things are not going well. We subtly make him into a God of joy alone, and a God of pleasure alone, and a God of protection alone, and yet this psalmist, from a reality of a raw, fundamental, soul-shaking cry, cries out to God and expresses his trust in God in the light of not understanding where God is in the moment. That's what I believe the psalms are to do and to train us 
to do as well. The psalmist pleas for mercy ascend to God in light of the iniquity that he himself has committed. We often bring concerns to God when those around us inflict us. Often we are deeply pained by those around us in the Christian walk or even as unbelievers. There are many things that fellow men and women do to us which we immediately bring before God and ask God to vindicate us and ask God to deliver us from these tragedies. But in this psalm, the psalmist is praying not about things that happened to him, but things that he himself has done. This is evidenced in verse 3. We ourselves, though, have a deficient view of God when we do not bring before him even the things that we have done. You see, our culture trains us to be concerned about what others have done to us that is wrong. In fact, as I was thinking about it, if they set up Ellis Island again today in America, they would ask, what's your first name? What's your last name? And what are you mad about? <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> I think that as Christians, we, we have a tendency to engage with the culture on social media, especially Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, what have you, and we don't analyze the messages that are coming into, our, into us through those, through those mediums. And one of the things that I think is deeply valuable about Twitter is it's, it's kind of like a pulse on the soul of America. The things which blow up on Twitter are accusations of evil against people who've wronged me. That's the most common thing on social media in American culture. It is stuff that other people have done that, that affected me, and here's why it was wrong, and I'm going to vindicate myself at this moment. We are, as American Christians, are susceptible to beginning to believe that way about life. Not just about the culture, but which members of my family have wronged me? Which members of my church have wronged me? And we begin to orient our entire lives as this just self-justification when re in reality, the most deeply, profoundly painful things that happen in our lives are not the things which other people do. We have a tendency to be able to bring those things to God and be able to forgive them, but we are extremely deficient, I believe, as American Christians in bringing our faults to God the things which inflict us, which we have done, that have, we bear the consequence of our own sin, and we are very reluctant to bring that before our Father. That's my, that's my opinion of what I see in this passage. This person is crying out to God, not because of affliction external to him, but because of his own iniquities, which is what verse 3 says. Our reluctance to express that pain of our own weight of sin, which we brought on ourselves, that is what I would call a functional atheism. That's not my term, but it's a helpful term. Because in the moment, I don't really understand who God is. God is not just the God who shields me from my enemies or who delivers me in a season of trial. My God is the God who wants to redeem me from my sin and from my shame and from my brokenness. 
the Psalms, not just this Psalm, but in fact, the Psalms as a whole teach us to bring to God before him in prayer as we bear our soul up to him, as we lift up our hearts to the Lord, we bring the entire economy of human experience before God. God is not just the God of joyful celebration. God is the God of deep mourning. He's the God who is still God in the midst of deep and lasting seasons of pain. The reason it's important to know these things is as Christians, we will go through dark valleys. We looked at that briefly in Psalm 23 last week. Again, this psalmist is saying he's crying out from the root of who he is. There is nothing left. There's no layers. There's no hypocritical masks which he can maintain. He's crying out from where he is just as a human being. And he brings that cry to God, and then he expresses the heart of the matter. Every person has done terrible things that if he or she were to tell even the closest person to them, whether it be a spouse or a parent, that person might consider those things to be beyond the pale. And if you're ever honest with yourself, you have thought and have done things which you would never wish to express to any other human being. And the reality of this is that at night, when you are going to sleep, or in a moment of private prayer, or in a moment where you are by yourself, if you're ever honest with yourself, the guilt of that weighs a thousand times more than what someone else did to you. Because you're the agent who is guilty in that sin. This is why I think it's very important for us, again, as Christians, we are inundated in our culture today to constantly be streaming, whether it's Netflix or pull down to refresh the feed or get on a live chat or or whatever it is, or just surfing the internet. If you've ever been on Reddit, you know what I mean. We are trained through consumption, to never become quiet. Why? Is it because we don't value being alone? No, I think it's because we know that there are voices, especially our conscience, which would be screaming if we ever got to that place. This is what I believe this psalmist is doing. He's saying, I know there's something deeply wrong with me. There is something I have done that is horrible, and I need mercy. This psalmist is bringing true honesty before the Lord. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? At that verse, he's saying that over the entire experience, all men and women, anyone who has ever lived on the earth, all of them have done things that if God should account their sin to them, they could not stand. And by that I mean stand, persist, continue to go on living. Psalm 1 says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. This person is saying all people are wicked. And then he moves on, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If God should count the sins of men against their account, they would all be found guilty. They would, not a single one of them would be able to stand. 
But this psalm remembers. It doesn't just go to the point of identifying sin. It remembers the reality of sin, and then it brings to mind the expression of God's nature and character, that he is the God, a God, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in loving kindness, slow to anger, rich in love. That is what this psalmist brings to mind as the answer to the deep weight of iniquity of the sins of all people. The psalmist says that God has forgiveness with you or with him. He's saying that God, wherever God comes, wherever God arrives, wherever God goes, he brings his forgiveness with him when he's coming to his people. The question, however, is why does, in verse 4, why does forgiveness with God lead to fearing God? The answer, of course, is that when we sinned, we did not fear God. Because fear doesn't mean just in a kind of human way to be afraid of something. Fear does include emotions, but it also has a greater view of honoring God and trusting that his blessings and curses, his, his commending of righteousness and his prohibition against sin are real and that there are real consequences to these things. When we sinned against God and when we sin against God, we do not rightly fear him. And therefore, because we do not fear God, we are then in a state of iniquity. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says that your sins have made a separation between you and God. We think of sin as just a wrong move. Again, as individualistic Christians, we might be thinking of, we're going to get to this destiny, and we've got to navigate a path there. And that sin was just using the left foot when we should have used the right foot. No, sin creates a chasm between us and God. It creates a separation between us and God such that we do not fear him and do not want to fear him. And therefore, the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness so that you may be, made, so that you may be feared. It means that in our sin we did not honor God, we did not obey God, and therefore, we're, we're separated from him. But in God's forgiveness, once we're reconciled to him, it doesn't just wipe the slate clean. It changes us. This is, again, the deficient gospel in our land is accept Jesus into your heart so you, when you die, you go to heaven. It's this kind of wiping of the slate. But here, the psalmist says that God's forgiveness transforms him so that instead of doing iniquitous, sinful things that, that take him down to the root of who he is, that he now is able to be transformed by God's forgiveness to be able to walk in fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing that the forgiveness and reconciliation of God is for his people, the psalmist then reasserts or proclaims his faithfulness in the God who is faithful. Again, this is so important for us as, as Christians in America who are susceptible to the doctrine of rugged individualism. Our great hope in the Christian life is not our ability to trust, but in the objective covenantal faithfulness of the God who redeems his people. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. 
Notice he doesn't say that I hope in my ability to hope. Or I trust in my ability to trust. I wait for the Lord. And whenever we see this happen in the scriptures where, where L-O-R-D is capitalized, we have to remember that is the name Yahweh. Some translations say Jehovah. That translation or name is a way of expressing in English the reality of what's there in the Hebrew. That is the name which God revealed himself to Moses with. Yahweh, I am who I am. I am the existent one. I am the one who never changes, the one who never repeals a promise. I am the one who saves my people. My people cannot save themselves. In fact, God made this very important and plain to Moses when he said concerning his name that in the past, I never proclaimed my name as Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he did, but in that place where he's explaining this to Moses, he, he said, I only did it in promise form. And now with you, Moses, you will begin to see me as Yahweh because you will see the fruit or the f- fulfillment of my promises. I will not only promise to deliver my people, you'll see it happen. And so when this psalmist says, I'm trusting in Yahweh, I'm trusting in the God who doesn't just promise deliverance, I'm trusting in the God who will bring deliverance. That's why in verse 6 he goes, My soul waits for the Lord, Adonai, the sovereign one. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen for the morning. Isn't that wonderful how the psalmist does that? He includes the words. We, we get to the next line and we say, oh, Wait a second. That was a copy and paste error here. You're, you've already said that. He's wanting us to be caught off guard by the repetition of those words. In light of the personal sin, this psalmist waits for the Lord. You see, we're not always delivered from our circumstantial curses or or tragedies, if you will. There are things that even as Christians, which we do, which bring a natural, God-ordained response. And those things may not be stopped by God's mercy and sovereignty. Think about it like this. If you became a serial murderer and you killed person after person, you were then arrested, tried, and found guilty and sent to lethal punishment. That the state had said, because of what you have done, you no longer deserve to live. At that moment, if you hear the gospel, what is your hope? Is your hope that in becoming a Christian, you won't face lethal execution? Not at all. In fact, we see this as we're approaching Easter. We see this happen on the cross. Jesus turns to someone who was guilty of lethal punishment. You see, it's so easy for us to take these stories as Christians and kind of abstract them and say, well, that's just part of Good Friday. That's what happened in that story. This person was a robber and a murderer. We don't know exactly the extent of his crimes, but he was put under the lethal punishment of the state. And being found as a treasonous person, he is on the cross and Jesus is explaining some aspect of what he's doing and that person, by the grace of God, comes to faith. Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, you can get off the cross. You see, there are times where we still face the circumstantial 
trial or curse or tragedy of our sin. Nevertheless, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is verse 3. Does God still mark my iniquities against me? Or do I have forgiveness in his eyes? Therefore, the psalmist says, my soul is waiting for the Lord. It's more important that God shows up for me than I'm delivered from my trials. The psalmist hopes in the word of the Lord, which has been uttered in the past, and he brings to mind that utterance. This is why I think as a church, uh, many people, Stephen Leopold is, is bringing this initiative forward. Uh, I myself think that the Lord is calling us to, as a people, this idea of memorizing Scripture unto meditation of Scripture. I, I have been deeply blessed in the last two weeks as I've been pursuing treasuring God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. That the storing up of God's word is a delight, it's a lamp, it's, it's my joy, it's sweeter than honey. And here this psalmist says, in his word I hope. I don't think the psalmist is saying that I'm listening to God right now because remember he just prayed, God would you be attentive to me? It doesn't feel like you're listening as I'm praying to you. And so the psalmist is not saying a present word which God is uttering to him privately. He's saying that he trusts in the word of God. And by that, I take him to mean the entire sum of all of God's promises uttered in the past. And that as he considers God's word in whole, in sum, in total, he calls it his word, not his words. That we move past individual scriptures, passages, portions, stories, and we begin to see what is God saying to his people? What is the word which God is saying to his people? Here his soul does not trust in his own ability to wait through the morning, but rather in God's sure arrival. The watchmen look attentively throughout the night, looking for the first sign of trouble until morning comes. It's very hard for us to imagine, but if you've ever been camping and have lost your flashlight or don't have any more battery left in your phone, you may have experienced a time in life where there is no light. In this day, people were established as watchmen on walls of a city. And the reason they put those watchmen there was that it was a common strategy to begin to siege a city at night. Why? Because the soldiers are asleep. And so the watchmen are posted on the walls and they have to be constantly watching. If you've ever been hunting, you may have experienced this phenomenon as well. When the light is very low, you can see movement, but you can't see a thing unless it moves. And so the watchmen have to watch all night and they they don't only just have to not fall asleep, they have to be staring out into the hills and the, the places around the city because they need to see the first sign of movement because that's when the danger must be responded to. That's what this psalmist is saying. These, these watchmen are on the walls of a city and they're looking for the dangers which are coming and at the first sign of their dangers, they'll sound the alarm and the city will respond. But here the psalmist says that he waits for the first sign of help. You see, the imagery is inverted intentionally. They're looking for trouble so that they can respond. He's saying, I'm looking for the first sign of deliverance because at the very first smallest sign, 
I'll respond in joy. Somewhere it was written that one of the prophets was waiting for, I believe it was Elijah, was waiting for rain to come after he prayed. And as they're staring out to the horizon, they don't see a giant cumulonimbus right in the middle of their faces. They see a cloud the size of a man's hand. That's what this psalmist is saying is, my soul is waiting until God brings that very momentary first sign of deliverance, and at that my heart will rejoice. And as just as the morning is sure to come, God's deliverance is sure to break into the psalmist's life. That's what he says, more than the watchman for the morning. The watchmen stay on guard until the morning shows up where light is more plentiful and they can change the guard. There's night watchmen, there's day watchmen. But here the psalmist is saying, just as sure as the sun is going to rise, so sure am I that God will bring forgiveness to me. It works like clockwork. Now, oftentimes we think God's late, but that's a matter for another day. The point is that this psalmist is absolutely sure of God's salvation. And so sure is he that he then moves to commend his salvation to the people. Interestingly, this begins to happen before we're even clear that God's salvation has arrived for the psalmist. He immediately turns and says to Israel, O hope in the Lord. As he remembers the Lord's nature as the God who brings salvation with him, that has forgiveness with him, that has steadfast love with him, he then begins to speak to the people around him and commend trust in God. O Israel, verse 7, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord, again, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. Another way to translate that would be covenant faithfulness. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Again, God's steadfast love or covenant faithfulness is with him. It is with him when he comes to his people. The iniquities of Israel are so commonplace in this last verse of the psalm that they are said to be his iniquities. Remember earlier how we were talking about the interplay between the individual and the corporation or the group, the the body, the corpus. It is true that individually in the scriptures we have individual guilt, individual sin, individual transgression, and yet there are also things which happen in our group that in God's economy and in God's speech, God's evaluation of the matter, he considers them the sins of a people group. The reason I say this is because the scriptures say this. For example, when Moses is on the mountain and Aaron makes the calf, Moses then comes down and as the event is over, after grinding the calf into powder and, and after judging their idolatry, there's a summary statement at the end of Exodus 32. And it says, the calf which the people made, comma, the calf which Aaron made. You see, the sins of the people were so thoroughly involved with Aaron's behavior that God considered it to be one and the same. It was Aaron's sin, the sin of the people. And so here the psalmist then says, not only does God have plentiful redemption for me, the God's deliverance is abundant for his people Israel. While God's deliverance is powerful and specific enough for the one, it is abundant enough to cover the many. 
the great tension between the individual and the group is resolved in God's economy of grace. So plentiful is God's redemption and forgiveness that the psalmist is able to rightly say it will cover all of Israel's sins. The question is, as Christians, and we read this psalm knowing that it has to be about Christ, the question is, how can we see Christ in any of this psalm? Christ surely did cry upon the cross, but I don't think that would be the way to interpret this passage. Surely Christ did wait for the Lord. He trusted in the Lord even as he faced trials. Surely Christ did commend God's forgiveness to God's people. Absolutely true. Amen. However, it's important to see that there are no messianic or Davidic promises or explicit mentions in this psalm. So as Christians, what are we to do with a psalm like this? I think that Christ can be seen, seen quite clearly in this psalm that both the people and the psalmist here are left waiting for God's deliverance. Remember how I said it's not quite clear that before verse 7 where the psalmist then begins to speak to the people about God's deliverance and salvation, both the people and the psalmist at the end of verse 8 are waiting for God's deliverance. There is only promise put forth. There is only redemption put forth. It has not been accomplished. While the psalm ends on a hopeful note, if the Lord never brings to pass what the psalmist was promising the psalmist would be put to shame. If the message for the rest of Israel's history was one day God's going to show up, one day God's going to deliver, then these people would have no firm root of trust because it's always the God who kicks the can down the road, right? The object of that hope, the object of their hope, however, provides a very important clue. And again, I think it's no surprise that it's found in the very center of the psalm. The psalmist waits not simply for human deliverance, but divine as he waits for the Lord. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And further, the psalmist hopes in the word of the Lord. The sum of all God's formerly given covenant promises to be fulfilled. I believe that right there is the kernel or the key, if you will, to unlock what does this psalm say to us today. As John opens his gospel, we might remember quite well that he describes the Son of God in precisely those terms. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. The psalmist is wanting God's deliverance and is trusting in the word of God. And so, John writes in John 1.1 1, 1 and 1.14, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this isn't just a rhetorical trick. What John is saying is that God had a Son, as he later explains in that chapter, in chapter 1, that Son is the expression, the speech of God, that God the Father spoke the Son into the world. And, and he understands Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, as the expression or the thing which filled the Father's heart. And that word came to fulfill the word of God. That God had given promises, individual words, which taken in sum and in total are the word. 
And therefore God spoke his son into the world to fulfill those. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What the psalmist was waiting for that he hopes in the word of the Lord has finally come to pass in Jesus Christ in his incarnation. He did not just come to accomplish a deliverance on the cross, but in everything that he did, he was fulfilling the whole of God's promises, each individual thing. Matthew therefore records that as Jesus was coming into the world, the angel told Joseph concerning the, the child that Mary conceived, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. What was the psalmist waiting for? He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Why is he named Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. You see, Jesus Christ is not just a human sacrifice on a cross carried out by an evil state, the Romans, at the evil request of the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus Christ came into the world to be the Lord bringing deliverance to his people from their iniquities. Now the deliverance from iniquities which Israel was hoping for has been totally and finally accomplished in Jesus his son. The Hebrew writer finally says, Speaking in accord with John 1 and Matthew 1, he sums up the introduction of his letter in Hebrews 1, saying that God has spoken through the word. Again, John isn't doing something novel. He's, he's saying this is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And the Hebrew writer says yes and amen. He tacks on a third witness, as it were. Verse 3, he is the radiance, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus Christ is not just a human being who fell under a circumstantial tragedy, which was unjust death at the hands of the state. That would be a sociologist approach of the gospel. No, Jesus Christ came to rightly express the nature of God, the God who is merciful and forgiving, the God who is God over all the seasons of the heart, of the heart. That God is the God who stepped down into time and accomplished all that was promised. Therefore, Paul says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. They're fulfilled. They've been done. Jesus says the cross, as we come to remember in, a, in just a few short weeks, he says on the cross, it is finished. Why? Because he knew what he was doing and he knew when it was accomplished. He wasn't just hoping that God would receive his atonement. He was making atonement. That's why it's so important to not miss what Matthew said. For he will, not may, not might, not will make available, he will deliver his people from their sins. Finally, finished, done. Why is it important as Christians that we return to this weekly and indeed even seasonally as we remember through Lent and, and through Good Friday and through Easter? Why is it important to impress upon our hearts and minds these truths is because we are quick to forget. But not only are we quick to forget, 
we also are slow to hear in this sense that we begin to think God has saved me from, the, from those sorts of sins which I could imagine to be forgivable. And yet, as the psalmist demonstrated in the first few verses, we're often reluctant to believe that God's forgiveness applies to the worst things that we've done. And we sometimes just don't think about them or we put them into a little cavern of our heart. And Jesus has 95% of our heart and his atonement works for 90% of the things that I've done, but I just did something terrible and I can't even imagine how God could forgive anyone, especially not a Christian. The reason why these Psalms are written, the reason why the Gospels are written, is because we do these things and we think these ways from time to time. And it's important that we do not stay there. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, not only do we have total peace with God if we trust in him, but we also are able to look back to what the psalmist simply was looking forward to. The, the saints of old looked forward to the cross and we have been given the grace by God to look backward in time to the objective reality of Christ's crucifixion. One of the things I love to remember is that I cannot go back in time and change the objective fact that Christ died in history. He made atonement on a cross outside of Jerusalem and it happened and I can only deal with the reality of that fact. I can either moment by moment trust in his work, his cleansing renewal, which brings me now to fear the Lord instead of running from the Lord and running to the Lord instead of leaving my father. And I can bring to him the worst sorts of sins that I do. While Israel only anticipated, we appreciate in fullness. And this is my goal today through this sermon is because we have such a great salvation, because we know the finality and the fullness of what has happened at the cross, we ought to imitate the psalmist and bear our soul completely in private prayer before the Lord. It is not enough that we think a little bit, eh, God will forgive that a few weeks from now. Or I can bear the reality with God of all these sorts of things, but of that thing that I did, not even I can bear to think about that. You see, what that does is that sets ourselves up as God, and it does not receive the, full, the fullness of what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Another way to think about it is Jesus bought that sin. You don't own it anymore. Stop clinging to it. So let's pray. Father, we have done such horrible things. If I were to enumerate the things which I have done in my life, no one could believe the extent, nor would they, if they were thinking on a human level alone, have the capacity to understand. Lord, we so often project deep evil on his historical figures like Hitler or Stalin or even our own governmental leaders or or the injustices of the past, or the, the sins of others. And we're, we're often, Lord, so focused on other people's problems, and yet we don't bring our deep needs before you. Lord, we thank you for your word, which tells us that you are able to redeem your people from all of their sins. And God, we ask that with this psalmist, we would learn how 
to bear our hearts before you, that you would deliver us and that we would know the extent of your forgiveness and that in knowing, just like that psalmist, we would go from groaning to gospel speech to our neighbors, to those who you've called us to love. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.